God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 68, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, January the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, continuing to look at... um, the, in Genesis, as the covenant has now been extended through Isaac to Jacob, and we're going to look at Jacob as he heads back, having stolen birthright and blessing from uh, his father and, and from his brother, he is now headed to uh, his mother's ancestral home to find a wife. And this is Genesis 28, 10 to 22. We're in uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, chapter 11, verses 13 to 22, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 7 to 17. So there's so much in this Genesis passage that I'd really like to have the time to unpack a ton of this. I'll mention a couple of things as we go through, um, but and they may not be the things that you would actually think that I wanted to focus on either. But I'll mention them as I go through, and then you can do some more research, if you'd like, on these issues. So Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. So Beersheba is an important place. It's where the family had settled, and it's, it's an important place throughout biblical history. It, it shows up again and again in the Old Testament, and, and he goes where? He's going to Haran. Where is Haran? Well, it's the place from which Abraham left. It's, it's the ancestral home of both his grandfather and his grandmother, and also his mother. Because remember, Isaac went back there because he's going to marry a member of the family as well. And so that's where he meets Rebecca. And so these are all family. And so, so they're keeping their marriages within the family. And so he goes to Haran, the place from which Abraham was told to leave. <clears throat> so he comes to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So we're not being told where this is. And so basically what we're being told is it's in the middle of nowhere. It's a place with no name. The sun has set and he stays where he is because the sun had set. Now, if you want to read Jewish commentary on some of this, if you you get a chance, look up Rashi, R-A-S-H-I. Uh, who was a 12th century uh, Jewish scholar, uh, look up what Rashi has to say about this. It gets incredibly confusing, what's going on here. Because what they want this to be, they want the place where he is to be Jerusalem. And so the links they have to go to to get this place to be Jerusalem at some level are interesting, to say the least. Because it's—you'll see in a minute. (laughs) So he is— taken one of the stones of the place, he laid it down, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So they were going up and down on that. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, 
the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Exactly the same promises. And so here now, God is, is renewing the covenant with Jacob, which tells us that in spite of the fact that he had stolen birthright and blessing from his brother, all along, which God had already said, he was the one who would receive the covenant. There's a prophetic word given at the birth about these two, and that's the way it's going to be, which makes the whole mess of stealing birthright and blessing completely unnecessary. Because both those things, they knew in advance that he was the chosen one, but he and his mother contrived to steal birthright and blessing. Now, could they have just trusted God and gotten this same result? Yes, they could have. But here he is now, he's on the run because his brother has threatened to kill him. And so God, however, says, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Great. Fantastic. So in, the, in this place, which is in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> Jacob sees a vision of the Lord and realizes this is, wait, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There's none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob recognizes that there's something incredibly special about this place, that, that the sort of the, the barrier between this world and God's world is thinner here. It's, it's the place where God's servants, the angels, ascend and descend from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. And so he, he says, this is the gate of heaven. Now, what's interesting in some ways about that is, is, is that in the New Testament times, the Jews believed that there were multiple places that were actually gates of hell. And these were places, in some cases, where Christians ended up setting up churches among pagan lands. And, and the reason those would have been gates of hell is because they were, they, the pagans believed they were openings to the underworld. They were places where, where the gods, or goddesses in some cases, came up. And, and in some cases, there would be these, these very strange visions. And, and in other places, there, there were strange gases there that sort of made delirium for the priestesses or the prophetesses, for instance, of Diana. And so th these places would have been known to the Jews as the gates of hell. And so what they did was established a, a place of worship where the gate of heaven was, because they wanted that contact vertical, not the opposite. <laughs> they wanted it going into heaven rather than down into the earth, into the underworld. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now, it doesn't seem to be called Luz at this time that he's there. It doesn't seem there's a city there at all. It's a Canaanite city. Remember, there's about 400 years going to pass between when Jacob is here and then when they come back to the land. So he, he calls this place Bethel, which is house of God. And so... The, 
the name of the city, though, the Canaanite name for it is Luz. And so we're given that detail by Moses, who wrote the first five books. We're given that detail because at the time that Moses wrote this, then people could have said, oh, I know where that is because it's called Luz. But it was called Bethel first, and now it will be called Bethel again later. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob comes and makes an offer to God. Right? I mean, it's an, it's an unusual thing. God's just kind of renewed the covenant with him using the same language that he used with Abraham. And Jacob, being Jacob, <laughs> is going to make a contingent and conditional response to God's offer. If you do these things, then you'll be my God. Well, his faith was not the same as his father's faith, as his grandfather's faith, because Abraham simply believed, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness, whereas Jacob makes a deal right? If you do these things, then you'll be my God. So when I come, if I come back here and you've provided for me all this time, then you'll be my God. And if you do all those things, then I'll give you a tenth of everything that I have. So it's so typical of Jacob to make a deal as opposed to accepting God's promise for what it was which meant, like we talked about on Saturday, that we take something in faith. And when we take something in faith, that is if God promises, we're counting on God, period, end of sentence. And we know his character, his faithfulness. And so if he's made a promise, we know he will keep that promise. And so when we walk forward then in the assurance of that, that is faith. Jacob has something kind of like faith. He's not accepting God at his word. He's saying, if you do these things that you just told me you would do, then you'll be my God. So at at present, he has not actually said, yeah, okay, not committed fully to this. In spite of this incredible revelation that he's just been given, he's still conditioning things. Jacob always hedges his bets, right? So so that's what you get with Jacob here. And then again, as I said, Rashi's commentary, and I may try and post a link to this, um, and it's it's a fairly easy read, except for sometimes it gets a little convoluted because you've got to make things work in a certain sort of a way. You'll see from Rashi's commentary a little bit about how the Jews see and understand Jacob and understand this whole thing and how they stretch things out to make sure that this is connected with Jerusalem. I think they're working too hard. In the gospel lesson, Jesus again says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. And so what you've got is the picture of a sheepfold out in the wilderness. And, and so what would happen would be there would be an enclosure, a stone enclosure there. And there would be perhaps multiple shepherds and multiple flocks that came into that sheepfold at night for protection. Think about Jacob, where he was, needed protection, ends up seeing, oh, my goodness, I'm surrounded by God. So here what you get is they come in for protection from the animals because you've got now all the flocks are together at night. It's easier to keep an eye on things, and it's easier to drive away predators. So the last one in then closes the door of the sheepfold, which makes it secure for the evening. So Jesus says, I'm the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the door. I mean, you can't be any clearer than this. The people who came before me are are nothing more than sheeps and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. And remember, um, just recently, we talked about this whole idea of the cynicism of the leaders of the people towards the people themselves. They don't know the law, they say, and they're accursed. That's an attitude of somebody who's a sheep and a robber and not a true shepherd. They don't care about the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved, and he'll go in and out, and he'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That That's not what the leaders of the people were in it for. They weren't in it for the people. They were in it for themselves. Some sort of self-aggrandizement one way or another, whether that's a financial thing or whether it's just the honor of being a leader. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. What's the illusion there, right? I mean, it's a simple illusion. It's Psalm 23. Jesus is claiming to be that shepherd from Psalm 23, but there's more to it than that, because there's also the shepherd in Ezekiel and the shepherd in Zechariah's prophecy who come to the bad shepherds, deal with the bad shepherds, and then shepherd the flock themselves, and that one is God. I will shepherd my people myself. And so Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, man. He is is making the biggest claim imaginable. If he's the good shepherd, he is saying, I am God. I know my own and my own know me. There's a recognition. And remember, in John's Gospel, in the first chapter, what we see is he came to his own, and his own knew him not. Here, what he says is, I know my own, and my own know me. So contrast that with, he came to his own, and his own knew him not, with, I know my own, and my own know me. It's a ringing indictment of the the leadership, the ones who would be shepherds over God's flock. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, we are known to him and we know him in the same intimacy of knowledge that the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. That is the relationship we're invited into, is that relationship in the Trinity, this knowing is a deeper form of knowing rather than just recognizing. There's knowledge at a deep level. We know the character of Christ, and we take on the character of Christ. It's the same way that he knows the Samaritan woman at the well, and he entrusts himself to her after he wouldn't entrust himself to the people in Jerusalem. It's that kind of knowledge and knowing. It's the entrusting of one to another and the full acceptance of that revelation by the other. And he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep, as opposed to the hired man who runs away. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So what Jesus is saying is is that, that even though my mission is to the lost sheep of Israel, which he says again and again, and not to the Gentiles, there is a Gentile mission to be accomplished. 
There's a flock. There are members of this flock that are not in this fold. And I will bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So these others who are outside the nation will be gathered in because they will respond to his voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. I heard a sermon one time where the person talked about that passage right there in the dumbest possible way, but it's because they had a different agenda. And so what they talked about with this passage was they said, see, this proves that there are many ways in. No, it actually proves exactly the opposite of that. There's one flock and one shepherd. It fits perfectly with John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's, I will bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. There's only one. There's not multiple flocks that get into heaven, and there's not multiple ways to do that. It's Jesus, period, end of sentence. And there's no way you can interpret that in any other way. Jesus is very clear who he is and that he's the only way. In the Hebrew passage, what we get is, is the, this is sort of the role of honor from the writer of Hebrews to talk about those who have come before. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So what he's talking about is those who have come before who have had promises made to them, like we talked about Abraham on Saturday, the father of many nations, and yet he only has, well, two children, one through whom the promise will be received. So he, he didn't see the fullness of that, but he will see the promise fulfilled in the world to come. And in, in Jewish eschatology, one of the things they believe is, is, is that God will gather the, the ones who have scattered all over the earth, who didn't die in the land, will be gathered back to the land along with those who have died in the land, and they will be resurrected. And then after that, Abraham and Sarah will be resurrected after all the others. And the reason is because that way, the very first thing they see is the fulfillment of the promise of the, the countless descendants. And so they will see that in their eyes is the way they look at it. And so they didn't see it at the time, but they greeted those things from afar. In other words, they believed that those things would be true, even though they didn't see them in their eyes and they acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, this wasn't their home. Ultimately, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. This earth is not our home. No matter where we are and how comfortable we are, where we are, then ultimately we need to be pointed towards the, the heavenly home. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because they believed. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, in other words, he had seen the fulfillment of God's promise in this son, he was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, however, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He was as good as dead. In Abraham's mind, he had already done this thing. He had already completed the sacrifice, and, the, and it's, the proof is that he continued and persevered after he began the journey to the place God showed him 
and was preparing to offer his son and only stopped because God said, stop. What's interesting, again, <laughs> about that is, is that, that God, the, the way that the Jews think about that sacrifice, that Abraham was so committed to this that he was somewhat disappointed that, that he couldn't at least wound Isaac because he was that committed. And so when we see this, that he believed in the resurrection from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, it points to that reality that he was so completely committed to the sacrifice of his son that is as though he had already done it. And, and because he didn't get the chance to physically do it, he wanted to at least cut him a little bit <laughs> to say that he had fulfilled the, the commandment God had given him to do that. It's a fascinating look, but you understand it when you see this, which it says, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So as far as Abraham was concerned, he was dead. But Abraham wasn't given the opportunity to fulfill even the barest part of the commandment, and so the sages say that he was disappointed. I've always found that humorous. But by faith, Isaac, the son, invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He prayed over them and blessed them. <clears throat> but by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, his son, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So he blessed his children, but then he also blessed his grandchildren. And, and he, didn't just, he wasn't just praying something over them. No, he believed that the blessing that he was blessing them with was real. And would come to pass. And so that's the reason those blessings are recorded, so that we can look back at the tribes and say, did that happen? Is it the character of the tribes in the blessing that he gave them? And now finally, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What he said was, when you come out of the land, when the people do, I want this written for posterity, that when you come out of the land, bring my bones. Because he, he was so convinced that that's in, indeed what would happen, that he made provision for what they would do at that time, in the same way that Abraham did when he brought the cave of Machpelah and buried Sarah there in the land. Because he knew that ultimately his family, his people, would be back in the land. Do we trust God with that same thing? Do we trust in God's promises in the same way? Do we believe them without condition? Do we commit to him based on his promises without condition? Not the way Jacob did, but the way Abraham did. I'm not bashing Jacob. I'm just saying his faith wasn't as complete as Abraham's. He saw something here. Abraham went without seeing. He went with only hearing in all these cases. And, and by going, he saw. It's important that we go that we walk out in faith every single day and that we intend to fulfill the mission God's given us. We intend to fulfill the Great Commission by going and making disciples and teaching them to obey. And when we do that, when we walk out in faith and obedience, we will see great things, and that's a promise.